0: Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good Good to see you all. Welcome here. Uh, Thank you, team, for leading us so well this morning. And uh, thank you, Brenda, for honoring Renee in that way. Uh, That was great. Um, Good to see all of you. And hi to our online community uh, that are meeting us uh, wherever they are. And um, uh, I trust and hope that you are all encountering Jesus and in different ways, in new, perhaps in fresh ways as you uh, journey with him. Uh, Speaking about encounter, I'd like to just take a moment to uh, announce something that's coming up this autumn uh, here at the church, and that is a Holy Spirit encounter. And uh, so we've done a few things this year. We did our Soul Care Conference in March. We did um, uh, a teaching seminar series in May around spiritual formation Uh, And now this coming up in November as kind of extra things outside of regular Sunday morning and regular ministry offerings, just to create space for us to lean in a little bit more in terms of our walk with Jesus and encounter Him in new ways. And so uh, this is coming up soon. We're going to be welcoming back uh, Jeremy and Carmen Kinneberg, who uh, were here during the Soul Care Conference. And if you weren't at the conference, um, you were maybe here on the Sunday morning when Carmen preached. And so they're coming back to lead us through uh, this, and it's going to be all about teaching about the Holy Spirit, about who He is, about His role in our lives, about being empowered by Him and walking in step with the Spirit. And I just want to encourage all of you to make a note on your calendar to be here uh, for that. And so it's coming up on November 3rd and 4th, uh, which is a Friday, Saturday. Now, for those that work on Fridays during the day, don't worry. It's just an evening session. It's just a couple of hours in the evening on the Friday, and then an all-day Saturday uh, time together. And so we'd love for you to come. Um, we're, we're only going to charge $30, uh, which includes lunch on Saturday and a couple of coffee breaks. We're trying to keep it as, as low cost as possible. We just need to cover our expenses. Um, and you can register as of tomorrow. So you can go to our website. There's going to be a space where you can register. You can pay online. Uh, if that is problematic for you, you can come into our uh, into our office, and one of our support staff will register you uh, for you. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to consider making this a priority. Um, it's something I believe in strongly. Uh, I think it's something that's going to give us more sort of collective language to use as a people as we move forward and um, to position ourselves more and more to the working of Jesus in our lives. So, registration starts tomorrow, uh, November 3rd and 4th, Holy Spirit Encounter. Uh, Last week, as Brian mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, we began a new series called Be Prepared, uh, Five Big Questions. And the idea of this series is to take a look at these five big questions, and they're not the only questions uh, that you're going to have, but they are significant questions that we as a pastoral team uh, prayerfully thought thought through and wanted to uh, present on, Uh, and they're big questions, and they're questions that both unbelievers and believers tend to struggle with. For, for many, for unbelievers, uh, what happens is uh, they, they, they can actually form stumbling blocks to their own belief. Inadequate answers to some of these questions are reasons for them not to believe in Jesus or the Christian message of the gospel. And while for believers, it may not be, be our trouble at the level of belief. We may, however, find them troubling in the sense of our comfort with our own faith. We don't know what to do with these questions. We struggle with them. We're not quite sure how to handle them. And if somebody asks them to us, we may not really feel equipped to answer them. And so, these are big, big questions. And last week, Brian tackled the question, is the Bible reliable? And today, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most challenging questions of all, and that is, why does God allow evil? And why does God allow suffering, and what is He going to do about it? And uh, in sort of a, a cheeky moment uh, this week, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to make this a really short sermon. And uh, many of you know that I'm a big English football fan, and I'm a Manchester United fan. And um, Pastor Zach, however, unfortunately, is a Bayern Munich fan. Ooh, excuse me. Even saying it troubles me. Um <laughs> He's a Bayern Munich fan, and I see Austin is here, and Austin's a Liverpool fan. Oh, excuse me. It's hard just to say that. That word just just doesn't roll off the tongue, man. Um, So, uh, you know, what I was going to do is bring a poster of Bayern Munich or Liverpool and just say, why would God allow this? (laughs) And and that was going to be it. And I was just going to pose that for you. But then I thought, well, you probably want something a little bit more substantive. So I became less cheeky. And dived into the scriptures. So, uh, we're going to tackle uh, this. Why does God allow e- evil? Um, and, and why doesn't He fix it? And I have to tell you that there is no really easy answer to this. If there was, I wouldn't need to be talking about it. If there was a 17th chapter to 1 Corinthians where Paul says, by the way, I know everybody's kind of wondering why God allows evil and suffering. Well, here you go. If there was that kind of passage, you wouldn't need me to preach on it. So, there's not easy answers to this age-old question. Uh, So I'm a fellow questioner with you, and I've experienced uh, and and, and been around people who have experienced suffering and had those questions and doubts also. And so what we're going to do is try to look at what the Scriptures do seem to address here, and uh, hopefully there's going to be enough then for us to be able to say, therefore, I can trust God with this, You don't need to spend very long on this planet before you get confronted uh, with suffering. And it may be your own suffering, or it may be suffering from somebody you know, or it may be suffering out there in the world that you observe or hear about, like we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks with the earthquake uh, in Morocco and the, um, the floods in Libya. There might just be suffering that you observe or hear about on the news. And, 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 and suffering and wickedness, and we're going to kind of talk about them together, not all suffering is as a result of somebody doing something evil to you, but we're going to kind of pull those two things together. So suffering and wickedness or evil is everywhere. And they have been a scourge on the human experience throughout history. Six million Jews exterminated by the Nazis, cancer ravaging the body of a loved one. Over 200,000 killed in the 2004 tsunami, millions of women and children who will be trafficked this year in the sex trade, millions of Africans forcibly removed from their homes to become slaves on plantations, domestic abuse, the Rwandan genocide, war in Ukraine, murder, the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims, jihad and terrorism. Unfortunately, I could go on and on and on and on. And give you examples both currently and throughout history of terrible, terrible things that have both been perpetrated by people and things that have just happened that have caused great and grave suffering. Suffering and evil lurk everywhere, and evil doesn't just lurk in the dark places of the world, but it seems sometimes that it's right out there in the open too. So our experience of suffering or our observation of suffering causes us as human beings to ask the question, why? Why is it like that? Why does that happen? And our thoughts, if we're Christians, can go something like this. If God is all-powerful, therefore He has the power to stop evil and suffering. And if God is all-good, then surely He has the motivation to stop evil and suffering. So if God is both good and He is both powerful, and therefore He could and has the motivation to do so, stop suffering and evil when He doesn't, what does that say about God? What does that say about God's love for us in the world? And those are troubling thoughts, are they not? I wonder how many of us have never struggled with these questions. I doubt there's anyone, actually. In our world, of course, is people that have different belief systems, and, and there are lots of different ways then in which humans have tried to answer this question, or at least tried to talk about how to deal with suffering. The Buddhist, for example, uh, generally argues that the, 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 the kind of world around is a bit of an illusion, and the best way to deal with evil and suffering is to try to escape it. And so if I can find some kind of profound inner enlightenment, then I can detach myself somewhat from the world and therefore detach myself from suffering. And I can find this place of inner peace. And I'm not quite sure how you actually really detach yourself from the world, but I guess if you're a Buddhist, it at least attempts an answer to you or an option for you to escape and avoid the suffering that's in the world. A Hindu might try to explain evil and suffering in this way. They would say that actually the evil and the suffering that I uh, experience in the world is because of bad things I did in a previous life. They believe in this idea of reincarnation. And the idea then is if I can live a better life now, then I'll suffer a little bit less in my next life. And if I can go on and on, getting better and better, I'll eventually reach this place of nirvana. And so it's a way to try to explain evil. Outside of the major religions, of course, there is uh, Darwinian evolutionary atheism. So, all of the Canadians that check no religion or, you know, uh, claim to be atheists and so on would probably fit into this sort of box. And, and, and Darwinian evolutionary atheism argues, or uses evil rather, to prove there is no God. Richard Dawkins, the sort of bulldog of atheism, says that suffering and violence and death mean that, open the quote, the universe has exactly the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Sounds great, doesn't it? We don't have time to say, say more about that. I'd love to talk more about that and, and some of the, the, the problems with that, but uh, we don't have time today. But there are lots of different ways to try then and explain why there is evil or how do we deal with evil. Um, but what about the Christian? What about those of us who, who say we follow Jesus and we believe in a benevolent creator? What would we say about this question? What can we say? And how can we t- attempt to understand this, this deep, deep challenge? I want to be really clear about the question, first of all, or, or rather the suite of questions. And the questions are this, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow evil? And what's He going to do about it? That is what we're trying to answer uh, today. What we're not trying to answer is, what is the origin of evil? Where did it come from? How did it begin? Why is evil even a thing in the first place? And I'll be completely honest with you, the reason we're not trying to answer that is because I have no idea. Uh, We can't answer that, quite frankly. 2,000 years since Jesus and many thousands of years before it, and humans really can't say a lot about that question. We just don't know. And so, for Christians, the Bible just doesn't tell us, and it's not that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. Um, There are a couple of things the Bible seems to say, and I'm going to mention those in a moment, but God just doesn't answer that question for us. So, how and why is there evil in the world? Um, I'm going to go to NT right here who says, we absolutely don't know. One day we probably will know, but for now, we're actually incapable of understanding it in the same way that a baby in the womb lacks the categories to understand the outside world. So that one we just probably can't understand, nor would be able to understand. And I think we have to leave it at that. Now, I did mention that the Bible... It's not like it doesn't say anything about that. It does seem to say that evil and suffering began to do their work in and among us as a result of human choice to turn away from God and His benevolent commands, right? When you find that in Genesis uh, chapter 3, that there was this temptation from a detached evil called Satan, an evil presence that sought to undo God's good creation. Again, we're not taught uh, about the origin of evil. We're not taught about the origin of Satan, except there seems to be some suggestion, perhaps, in the Scriptures that it was a fallen angel. Uh, but even that is not completely clear. But nevertheless, we do discuss this idea of how God has given humanity, and presumably, then, angelic beings as well, uh, free will to choose right or to choose wrong. God didn't just create humans who have no free will and just essentially use us as robots in his giant chess game, but rather God gave us ability to choose to obey and to love him, or to choose the opposite. Now, it doesn't answer the question for us, but it does help us in the sense that there seems to be some biblical affirmation that there is human responsibility here. God did not just create good and bad, and throw it into a bowl to see how it would work out, like he created a giant cosmic dogfight for his own viewing pleasure. Like, that's not it. He actually created a good and wonderful and perfect world for human life and flourishing, and a combination of evil, and we already said we don't really know how it began, but evil plus free will to choose badly resulted in a trajectory being taken that has led us down this pathway that includes evil and suffering in the human experience. So, that I think we can say. Our fault, Satan's fault, not God's fault. So, we can't answer the origin question really completely. Uh, There is some help regarding regarding it, as I just mentioned. But what else can we say about evil and suffering? Why does God allow it? Why doesn't He stop it? And what's He going to do about it? And the way I think we're going to attempt an answer is by going to the wonderful story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, and we're just going to kind of walk through Lazarus a bit because in it, it offers us some great, great clues um, to this uh, piece. So in John chapter 11, you get this amazing story of the raising of Lazarus, a man who had died, and he gets called out of the tomb, and it's an incredible story of life overcoming death. Of, of of Jesus um, performing the most incredible miracle that 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 is victorious um, in its in its elemental nature. It is it is Jesus having power over death. It is God reversing death. It's an incredible story. It tells us that. The evil doesn't have the last word, death doesn't have the last word. It also anticipates what's going to happen to Jesus in a few chapters. It also anticipates what's going to happen to Jesus' followers at the end of time when we too get resurrected to new life and inhabit God's new and perfect world. That's what John 11 is all about, and it's all of that. But in addition to being that, it's also a fascinating story about human suffering and God's response to human suffering and what God is going to do about it, and to a certain extent, why He allows it. So, in John chapter 11, we have a man named Lazarus, and he has uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus has fallen ill, and they call for their family friend, Jesus. Luckily for them, their family friend happens to be a miracle worker. So, they call on Him, expecting that Jesus will come immediately and drop everything and will see this as the emergency that they see it. They're shocked and dismayed and hurt that Jesus doesn't seem to share their sense of urgency. John eleven five 5 to 6 says this, accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was." And why this is troubling is because Jesus often healed strangers, people he didn't know. And here's a close family friend. Why would he heal strangers but not heal Lazarus? And that must have been troubling for for Martha and for Mary. What is also troubling about this is Jesus had the power to heal, heal people from a distance. Sometimes he would say a word and somebody would be healed in another town. Surely he could have done that. He could have just spoke it from where he was, and there in Bethany, there could have been this miracle healing of Lazarus, but he doesn't. And so as believers, we are confronted with something straight away in this passage. As Rebecca McLaughlin says, sometimes we call for Jesus through our tears, and he doesn't come. So right away, in this passage about Lazarus, we can put ourselves in there. How many of us have prayed for a loved one who hasn't made it, or we've prayed about some suffering and it hasn't ended? We've begged Jesus to come and it appears like he hasn't come. We have some biblical examples of this reality. Jesus, on the night when he was arrested, pleaded with the Father to take away the cup of suffering, but he went to the cross anyway. Paul was tormented by a thorn in his flesh and he prayed several times for healing, but he was never healed. Jesus could have come when Mary and Martha called him to, but he didn't come. When Jesus finally comes, Lazarus has succumbed to his illness and he's died and he's in uh, the tomb. And verses 20 to 26 say this When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And we have to feel the emotion of that question or that statement, rather. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, oh, I know, I know, I know. He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So, Martha has approached Jesus with her protest and her pain, and Jesus, rather than dealing with it straight away, says, well, Lazarus is going to rise again. And, and, and Martha, being a, a first-century Jew, spoke according to typical Jewish belief and Jewish dogma that, yeah, I understand at the end of time, like with everyone else, he will be raised again, I get it, but what about my pain now, Jesus? Jesus. Martha stands where many Christians stand when we face suffering. We, we have hope that when Jesus returns, all injustice and all evil is going to be dealt with and it's going to finally be uh, put to death and, and death itself will be destroyed and every tear will be wiped away. We have this beautiful future hope, but my pain is urgent and real right now in this moment, Jesus. And far faraway hope is good, but it's not enough to, to, to deal with the wounds that I feel right now. It doesn't soothe my pain enough today, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't actually fix Martha's problem. He's going to, in a temporal sense, in a, in a few verses. But he looks into the eyes of this grieve, grieving woman, and he imagine with the most intense look of empathy and love possible, and he tells her, actually, that he's the resurrection and the life. What you need, Martha, actually in the midst of your suffering is not what you think you need. You actually don't need your brother back. You actually need me, is what he says. And that's even more shocking a statement than him not showing up in the first place. What do you mean? What do you mean? Far from the soft, meek, and mild Jesus that teaches how to have a better life and who's safe and good and moral and and all of that, far from that image, we have this Jesus who, faced with human suffering, actually just says, actually, what you need is me. And he says, I'm life, and that's why you need me. Anyone in the room who's ever been a parent knows that at times we have to let our children suffer. And it goes against every fiber of our being who just want to protect our children from any and every hurt that we can. But sometimes we have to hold our infant child while some stranger sticks a needle in their arm. And when they're too young to understand, the look of betrayal on their face is heartbreaking through tears. Far, far worse than that are the parents that have to allow a doctor to put poisonous chemicals into the bodies of their young child who's going to end up vomiting and losing his or her hair. I can't imagine having to do that as their bodies fight off a wicked cancer. I can't imagine. But parents do it, and parents allow it, and the reason they allow it is because they might just save the child's life. So, this interaction between Jesus and Martha is a small part of our answer to this question about why God allows suffering. God knows that the path of suffering for some people in some instances, many people in many instances, is actually the only way to save their lives. What they actually need is Jesus, all Jesus. He's the only path to life, and the only way that they'll find Him is through His pain, or through their pain, rather. Rather. Theologically, I wouldn't say that God goes around causing everybody's pain, but I would say that God allows pain to enter into lives, and He doesn't always immediately stop it. He doesn't step in, because the cancer-killing chemicals are the only way that is going to rescue life. And many of us have stories about how we went through deep, deep pain, and actually it was the thing that finally reached us. Or many of us have family members who have walked away from the faith, and we have a keen sense that one day they may well come back, but they've, for whatever reason in their journey, they've got to go through pain and suffering and know what it's like to be without God. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin, what could possibly be worth this suffering that I'm going through? And Jesus' flabbergasting answer is that He is. So this is part of the answer to our question about why God allows suffering and evil. It's not the whole story. There's more to the Lazarus story. Martha responds with this stunning faith in the midst of her pain. She declares that she knows He's the Messiah, God's Son, and then she goes and fetches Mary, her sister. And Mary comes to Jesus, and she kneels before Him, and she offers up the same pained complaint to Him. She says to Him, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, Jesus. And I wonder if Mary was taking it harder. Because Martha greeted Jesus, Mary wouldn't go near him, not to begin with. She eventually comes. I wonder if she was taking it harder. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verses 33 to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And I think I've said this to you before, that the Greek of that little passage, uh, Greek is often a picture language. The, The Greek of that particular language is like, you know, when a horse gets spooked and it rears up on its back legs? It's that kind of, that's the idea of being greatly disturbed. So, Jesus didn't just, you know, sit down for a moment and just, you know, gently dab his tears, oh, this sucks. No, no, no. Jesus was deeply moved and deeply upset and deeply troubled by what he was seeing and what he was experiencing. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. Here we have Jesus now entering into the mourning and the suffering and the pain of Martha and Mary. And He weeps and He's greatly disturbed by what's happening. Now, that might strike you as a little strange. It strikes us as a little strange because in a few minutes, He's going to raise Him from the dead. What's He crying for? He knows the end of this story. Why is He weeping? He knows everyone's about to laugh and cry and throw a party. Why on earth is Jesus crying in this moment when He knows exactly what's about to happen? Well, I think what we have on the one hand is the incarnate Son the second member of the Trinity, who was there at creation and through whom creation was made by his powerful word, who knew how beautiful God had created our world and has lived eternally in perfect union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this divine dance at the center of the universe. This is the same Jesus then who was standing in human flesh in the muck and mire of human brokenness before the cold reality of the grave, and he knew it wasn't meant to be this way. And so I don't think Jesus is just weeping about Lazarus because he loved him. I think Jesus is weeping over human suffering and brokenness and evil. And I think he's disturbed by it. It's not supposed to be like this. And he was moved by human grief and shared it as a fully human man. Church family, we do not have a remote, distant deity that is up there somewhere in the universe And he's not moved by human suffering. We have a God actually who inhabits our suffering. He didn't remain aloof and distant, but came down to share our grief and provide a way out of it for us. And Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew what it was like to grieve. Later it says, uh, surely he, he carried our pain and carried our diseases and carried our sorrows. And this is more than Jesus just having sympathy on us. Grief and suffering and sickness and disease and brokenness all got rolled up and it got added to sin and guilt and it got loaded onto the back of the Messiah who was going to carry it. And when we think of the cross, we so often think about how it brought forgiveness of sins and it did. But it's so much more than that. Also, as well as our sin get nailed to the cross, the Messiah was nailed to the cross who was carrying with him our sickness and our suffering. So the cross has dealt decisively with sin. It's also dealt decisively with suffering. So Jesus knows the resurrection is coming, and yet he is still deeply disturbed. Jesus knows the end of the Lazarus story, but it doesn't stop him from weeping. Most of us probably know the end of this story. Jesus stands before the tomb and he calls him out. And out comes Lazarus, alive and well, resurrected from the dead. And the theology is deep because this is a picture of what's about to happen for Jesus in a much more real and powerful way in a few chapters. And this is what's going to happen to every one of us who put our trust in Jesus, that we too are going to be resurrected out of our own graves and we're going to have it in God's new created world, the new heavens and the new earth. It's deep, deep, deep with uh, theology. But the whole narrative still leaves us with puzzling questions. Why did Jesus not just deal with it sooner? If he knew this was going to happen anyway, why didn't he just prevent the death? Or if it was His way of showing, like I said, that he needed to develop that theology for us. It was his way of showing people that he had power over death. If he had to do that, why didn't he take, for goodness sakes, Mary and Martha to the side and say, by the way, guys, this is what I'm going to do. Don't worry about it. Your brother's going to die, but I'm going to raise him. You know, it seems cruel to make them suffer and mourn. Why didn't he tell them what he was about to do? It leaves us with these these puzzling questions. And those are questions that we all have. Why? Why? Why did this have to happen? God, you're all powerful. You could have stopped it. Why did my crying out to you in desperation not receive the answer I so desperately needed? Why didn't you come when I needed you? And in the odd stretching out of this story, we actually get to see the whole biblical framework of suffering. The gap between the death of Lazarus and Jesus calling out of the tomb is the space in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is and declares him to be the Messiah, God's own son. And so in the gap that we all live in, whether it's the space between creation and new creation or the space between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, in that space that we all live, everyone in the world has the chance to see Jesus for who he really is. And it's why the mission of this church is so urgent. And we have the chance to see, and as we've already discussed, it's so often through our struggles and suffering and pain that we actually see Jesus for who He is, and He meets our deepest needs. And finally, we we submit our stubborn will and give in to His Lordship. And along with that, we realize that He was weeping right along with us as we were suffering. He inhabits our pain and brings salve to our wounds. Like the parent allowing the cancer drugs to make their kids sick, Jesus allows the suffering so that he can hopefully save our lives. So, evil and suffering are reality in our world. There's nothing we can do about it, but both God's permission given to free will and the actions of being in beauty out of ashes as a way for people to turn back to Him are are, are a couple of things that we can hold up in terms of trying to answer this question, why does God allow evil and suffering? And also, Jesus grieving alongside us gives legitimacy to God that a remote, disconnected deity would not. So so these are things that can help us. Now, this hardly settles the age-old problem for us um, completely, but it's an important biblical perspective that can help us. There's a few other things that I want to say, and I don't really have a lot of time to say it, so I'm just going to use um, the words of some scholarly friends uh, to help me say a few things. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, an important figure from the 20th century who lived up and close and personal with suffering said this, when I encountered the suffering in the world, the only way I could deal with it is I had to turn to the cross of Christ, because that's where we're meant to turn. Mother Teresa dealt with her struggles and her questions and her difficulty uh, uh, when it came to evil and suffering by looking to the fact that God himself also suffered. Jesus, the only human without sin, took on sin himself and allowed punishment to fall on him. So, not only does Jesus mourn and grieve alongside us, not only does he use suffering as a way to try to draw us and save us and bring him to himself, he also allowed evil and suffering to do its worst to him. He didn't look away when it came to our suffering, but he marched right into the lion's den. So, even if we can't fully answer this question, I think there's enough here to say, but we can trust him. This means. He's really trustworthy because he could have just left us in our mess, but he didn't, so he knows what it's like to be you. N.T. Wright also looks to the cross on his reflections uh, with evil, and he describes, I love this, he describes the cross as God's big no to evil. It's It's God's way of dealing with it. So, so not only is the cross the way in which Jesus suffered and so on, but it's actually the way in which God is dealing with and going to deal with evil. You see, we've been talking about why God allows suffering and evil, but this touches on what God is going to do about it. We don't have much time here, but what God is doing about evil is that he's going to wipe it out once and for all. It's going to be done. It's going to be finished one day. We don't have... Uh, uh, The cross, the symbol of defeat and death, is actually the most victorious of all symbols. The cross and, of course, the resurrection spell the end of human suffering and evil in our world. The cross is actually the ominous sign to evil that its days are numbered. Evil and death will be swallowed up, thrown into the lake of fire, never again to touch human beings. So when we face evil and suffering, we can also know that it's not the sorry end to the story. And the final scholarly friend I want to use is the late Timothy Keller. And Keller says, even though there is still much mystery to this subject, one thing we can say, and I've been kind of saying it all morning, is that it, it can't be, it cannot be because he doesn't love us, and it cannot be because he doesn't have empathy on us. It can't be either of those reasons or that he's indifferent to our condition. He then goes on to talk about this idea of God dealing with evil also, and he describes how he woke up years ago from a terrible, terrible dream that seemed so real to him. And in his dream, all of his family members had died, and it was awful. And he said, you could not imagine the relief I had when I woke up, and I realized that it was a dream. But he said there was more than just relief His delight in each family member was so much more as well. It reminded him tangibly how much he loved each one of them because he felt like he lost them in the dream and he'd he'd found them again. And his joy in his family members was so much more enriched. And he uses this story of that dream to talk about how with the new age to come, for those of us who trust in Jesus, it's going to be so incredible. It's going to be like waking up from a dream. It'll be like all of the suffering that you endured and witnessed in the world will all become kind of untrue. It'll all become untrue. It'll be so much more richer because the suffering will be erased. And, okay, I'm sneaking in one more scholar. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that, heaven... Once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And so, to close, to atheists like Richard Dawkins, who use suffering as an example for the non-existence of God, who argue that reality is just pitiless indifference and we should just get on with our lives, come what may, I would say this: suffering is actually not the wrecking ball that knocks Christianity down but it's actually the cornerstone that painfully, brick by brick, it's always been built. Amen.